Before we get going this week, I thought I'd just remind you that I'm a certified business strategist who's been in property for over 25 years. I know my clients shortcut their success by being laser focused through strategy and mentoring, as no one business model fits us all because funding, geography, skill set, it all plays a part in deciding what works for you. Getting it wrong can definitely damage your wealth. If you're serious about property, then your first step is a call with me. Nothing more difficult than following the link in the show notes to book it. Hello, and welcome to the Property Solopreneur podcast, a show for property investors and developers who want to build and grow their own profitable businesses. I'm sharing with you my decades of property experience and interviewing many other successful property people who are happy to share their varied and priceless knowledge freely. Business doesn't need to be hard, and nor do you need to be lucky. But as a certified strategist, I know you need a plan to work to. And a good start is by listening to other people's successes and failures. Why reinvent the wheel? This allows us to have a more in-depth knowledge of the wider property world. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of The Property Solopreneur. And this week, I'm casting my spotlight onto the often overlooked pillar of property investing, the world of mortgaging and bridging. Now, for those of you who are now yawning and letting their minds wander, listen up, the right broker is absolutely vital for your wealth. And if you've just rinsed and repeated with a broker without giving the thought about, mm, who am I dealing with? Have a listen to what my guest says today. Simon Hodgson, is the founder of Funded, a Bristol-based mortgage company. But he's a seasoned buy-to-let investor himself, and he works with buy-to-let, commercial, and property development loans around the Bristol area. Now, everybody knows I don't work in Bristol. And actually, it's the opposite side of the country to me. But I see Simon every month at the Norwich Property Meet. Now, Simon is a canny chap. He supports us Norfolk and Suffolk property peeps in two ways. He, you know, he keeps us up to date each month on what's going on with the money markets. And he funds the meeting by underwriting the cost of a drink from the bar to take into the meeting. Needless to say, of course, the meeting always goes with a swing and the ice gets broken really quickly. But on a small serious note, finance is absolutely vital for our long-term wealth. And in this conversation, we talk about everything you need to know, the whys, the hows of money, and we do a bit of myth-busting as well. Well, hello, Simon. Thank you very much for taking the opportunity to come and talk to me this afternoon because you and I talk off the same song sheet in that it's all very well getting overexcited about property, but there's one thing that makes it happen, isn't it? And that's funding. And you are a funder. Uh, and a mortgage broker, and um, I know you're going to talk to us about lots of different things. But before we do that, can you tell us a little about you and why you do this? Yeah, abs- absolutely. So, so for the, for those guys out there that, that haven't heard of me, so I started my property investing journey over 20 years ago. I went out and got a bit of education. The education with the guy was with a guy called Russ Whitney, who was an American. He done quite well over in America with his his property investing and his training business. He came over to the UK. It's a fairly familiar story that you, you know, I got a bit of education. I didn't pay huge amounts for it. Understood that some of the principles were a bit Americanized. However, I also knew that the underlying underlying strategies could and would work. 
So I did what most people do, pick up the phone to what was my then broker or a broker I knew, talked to them about what I wanted to do, and they kind of glazed over and went, sure, you're going to be able to do that. And I'm like, well, absolutely, I'm going to be able to do it. And, and you're going to do it because I've come to you, Howard, because I've got no one else to go to just yet, but I won't be coming back for a second time, that's for sure. And yeah, that, that was my kind of investing journey. So f- from there on, I kind of learned very quickly that most Average brokers, whilst good at what they do do, that's residential mortgages and maybe the odd accidental landlord buy to let, aren't really any or, or particularly good to have as a part of your power team if you're looking to get creative funding going, et cetera, et cetera. That's kind of where I've come from. Still do investing in the background, learn how to lose it all through the credit crunch. Don't recommend it. However, it is possible to kind of do it a bit more quickly second time round, et cetera. Are there niches for brokers? Do you specialise? Yeah, totally. Okay, so my yeah, my niche is you know specifically within that investor sphere, but recycling of cash and finding creative ways to fund deals. So typically, I will be can do single lets, and uh, we do do lots of them. But it might be the more esoteric type strategies that get you higher yielding results. So HMOs, blocks of flats. Her holiday letters, stroke service accommodation, uh, refurbishment loans to buy a property and, and get it funded. I can go all the way up to 100% funding in, in some circumstances. So, you know, you can have no money and still make a deal work. It's not easy, but it is possible. Absolutely. We'll come back onto that because I know you were involved in some very interesting ones. Um, but I think investors need to understand that this is absolutely critical, isn't it? The whole funding thing is critical to their success. And most of them don't realise why and what an interest rate is and how it affects what they do. Yeah. And it's very typical that a a broker who who doesn't necessarily understand property investing will go out and look for what instinctively they think is the right thing to do, which is the cheapest product. And that therein lies the challenge. That isn't necessarily the right thing to do. It's about finding the right fit for the project that you're doing and the end result. So it might be that we start with the end of the year, we start with the end in mind. Okay, where is it looking to go to? What are you creating? What will it be when it's finished? Oh, okay, right. I understand that. I know what that is. I know what, what you know, how that works in the area you're in. Okay, right. So probably the lender for that is X, Y, or Z. Okay, well, if we're going to use that lender, okay, there might be some continuity that we can build into that where we can have a value that can value at the beginning, but also be there to be the same value that provides our end result. So we kind of cover that bit off uh and and or you know it might be the it's a very light refurb that can you know, can be done in under 30 days so some lenders would allow that to take place without bridging being in place but again if you pick the wrong lender based purely on price not on fit um yeah alone come unstuck also as investors very often we are borrowing money from other investors to help us do our journey that is a very thorny thing for a lot of lenders. <laughs> yes. So you've got to, and you've got to understand as a broker really why people even have private funding, haven't you? Yes, totally. Absolutely. Interest rates are very much uh, a problem of the moment. And in, mm-hmm. interestingly, I had someone tell me this morning that interest rates have never been so high in living memory, Whoa. investing living memory as at the moment. And I went, well, huh, I, I, I remember them being this high before. It's just that we had an abnormal period. Over the years, where have interest rates traditionally sort of sat? Okay, so for the last 14, 15 years, the average interest rate, base rate for the Bank of England has been half a percent, give or take. 
that takes us back in time to this side of the credit crunch. We then go back to the other side of the credit crunch. Typically, rates, average rates were 5.5, so a bit higher than where we are at the moment. We can then keep going back into the 90s, and the average rate in the 90s was just below double digit, although we had a spell in double digit. And for those of us who do remember, and I wasn't able to buy property, but I was around in that time, late 70s, we had interest rates knocking on sort of 19% and what have you. An average rate, again, high single digits and in, into double digits. So this lower rate interest environment is only something that has been around with us for the last sort of 14 years. However, the market has got very used to it being as low as it has been. Free money, we can call it. Um yeah, that person who said that the rates have never been this high, they must be extremely young. <laughs> they were, they were. <laughs> but why Why do investors need to keep an eye open on it, on interest rates? How damaging can interest rates be to their portfolios and their investing? There are multifaceted areas as to why you need to take into account. You know, one from the portfolio that you've got or you're building and where you are on the rate cycle for those, whether they're on two-year products, five-year products, whether they're coming up for remortgage, whether you're looking to take equity back out on some of the properties in order to continue forward investing, down to where we are on the rate hiking cycle now, where, where that's potentially going to go, where things might be in one or two years' time, down to where I've worked with a lot of clients you know, quite recently and, and over the last 12 months where it's even made sense to pay off your current lending and pay the early redemption charges to take a two or a five-year fixed rate at a new level so that you weren't left remortgaging right now, which is what they would have done had they not acted soon. So it was actually cheaper to pay an ERC, get out of a product. This isn't financial advice, by the way, I would have to no. say. This is a generalized view and, and obviously we would need to have one-to-ones to be able to give proper... Yeah, absolutely. Uh, get proper, but, but yeah, in generalized terms, you have to be really careful about where the, where the portfolio is, where it's going, what you're looking to try and do with it. And also, if you're buying a project, you know, you're buying it now, you might be doing a refer, but the remortgage might be six to eight months down the line. Where, is, where do we think the market's going to be? But also in the really short term, if we're in a raising right in raising rate environment, which we are, and things have gone up unexpectedly, and they've been relatively predictable up until the last six weeks, what that tends to have is a bit of a shockwave into the market in terms of, okay, right, I can't borrow as much as I thought I could. I may need to offer a little bit less to buy this. And if you haven't done that, if you're not looking at the current deals that you're going into at the moment and questioning, okay, well, what the purchase price does it need to be trimmed because now my interest rate payments are going to be higher? Potentially, you're buying right at the top of a mini cycle where prices might be about to readjust over the summer period. Um, so as investors, we need to be really, really kind of clued up to how that can affect the marketplace. And generally, there's, a, there's also lags involved, whereby sellers don't necessarily see the impact of the rate rises that you know, they're still hanging on to, yeah, I, I still think my property's worth X, Y, or Z. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And, and us dream. as buyers, yeah, yeah, indeed. And us as buyers, we're kind of going, well, actually, products have gone up a little bit. The stress test now means that borrowing 75% in certain circumstances might not be possible. However, if I paid a bit less, I can get 75% loan to value. Therefore, that's what I've got to offer. Yes. It, it is a problem. And I know that you... 
because I see you present at, at the Norwich Property Meet, you always talk about the Sonia swaps and understanding that means that we can see a bigger picture. Tell us about Sonia. She's such a lovely lady, isn't she? Sonia, the sterling overnight interbank average. There are a couple of different versions of it. So there's a daily one, which gives more of an indication of, of where banks are right now. But what we're after is the averaged one, which is averaged over a period. And that acts like what we call a barometer and not a thermometer. So a thermometer is the Bank of England's base rate right now. That tells us where we're at right now. That's like looking out the window, it's raining or it's sunny, yet we know what's happening. If we look at forward sort of satellite images, if you like, we can see what the weather might be like tomorrow or next week. And that's really what the Sonia swap rate does. It's that barometer. It's that into the future type setting. And the more we can gauge the future, the easier it is to make the money, isn't it? Because you're not taken by surprise. Yeah, totally. And it's something that's been accurate over the last 15 months. Um, It's been pretty accurate. Oh, right. Gosh. So it really is worth trying to get your head around it. Yeah, totally. And anyone who's seen me speak live will, yeah, probably be bored to tears with, with me kind of banging on about it. But it has enabled me to pretty accurately predict where rates are going. So we knew back in beginning of May, so, so, so for the start of the year, the swap rates had suggested that the Bank of England base rate would probably top out around four and a quarter percent. And that looked set all the way up until we went into May. Into May, it, it started to tick up a bit. And it was like, hang on a minute, it looks like rates are going to have to go up a little bit. And lo and behold, that started to happen. And just before the last inflation data reading came out, um, it tipped up even more sharply. So it had gone from what was around four and three quarters. It was now sat between, I think, five, five and a quarter to five and a half. And that instantly told me back then that we were the last Bank of England meeting, we weren't going to have a quarter of a percent rate rise. We were going to have at least a half a percent. And it's now sat suggesting that we are going to have well, it's debatable whether it's going to be a half or a quarter. The market hasn't quite decided yet, but yeah, it's that accurate. And that's quite a big hike, can you? I mean, how many have we rate rises have we had since it started? I think like 13, 14? Uh, yes. Yeah. So the yeah, Bank of England have been fairly conservative in terms of they've been going up in quarter percent rate rises rather than the, the Fed have been going a bit more aggressively at half a percent. So they've done less rate rises, but kind of almost got to the same place. So yeah, we've been doing quarter of a percent. For them to go up by half a percent at the last meeting was a shock. No, no. Well, I say no one expected it. I, as I said, I've been looking at the indicators, and it was coming. Absolutely, but it it is quite interesting. I, you know, as part of my work when I'm working on people's strategy and their portfolios, we look at the you know their the whole spreadsheet, and it's amazing. I remember this time last year saying to people, "Well, let's stress test it. I hope you do at three, seven, nine, and thirteen percent," and they'd go, "Well, that won't happen. What's the problem?" Uh, and you know, the only stress test now they can do is seven, nine, and thirteen. We've already passed five. So you know, it is very interesting how that happens. Now, what happens to people who have to remortgage, and yet? It's not going to work. You know, the figures aren't going to stack. What what happens to people in that situation with an investment property? There are, and again, this is this not financial advice, it's generalised talk about how you can deal with that. So if the property that you've got is relatively highly leveraged and it doesn't look like it's going to pass stress test, 
with new lenders at the kind of borrowing that you need to replace the current borrowing. So you're not taking any extra money out. You're just swapping. It's a debt. It's a like a like for like debt swap is what we call it. Yep. If we can't go to new lenders to do that, because the stress test now means that getting new lending won't work. So typically two years are really hard to make work with most lenders. This, this is more for single lets. We'll pray to Moses it is possible still to do this. And in some holiday let circumstances, we can maybe cover that a bit later. How, how, you, how you value an H, a, a holiday let varies differently with different lenders about picking the right lender to get the right outcome. Oh, right. So... If we can't pass the stress test to go to a new lender at 75% loan to value, we then have to look back at the current lender and see what product swaps they've got. Because typically, given that you're a current client of theirs, their stress testing will have some bearing on the product that you took out originally with them. So should be more lenient. Ah. And yeah, but typically the rate is a bit higher than the rest of the market. So there's, there's a trade-off. But there are places you can go you know, to, to kind of get around that, it, it comes with advantages in terms of not having to get valuations done. If you think your values have gone down in your area, which some places have, um, and it also saves on some solicitor's costs. So in certain circumstances, it's the right thing to do. If you're looking to capital raise, it's a little harder. Um, yeah. Again, doable. But I, I know that there are some people who, who are going to find that they'd based all their figures when it was incredibly low. Uh, and they may well struggle and may well have to pay some money in, so to speak, to get a lower product because it's just not going to work, particularly for those people who've got um, a single let that you know the, the rent hasn't kept up with the market because it's been a long-term tenant. They, they've got to do a bit more work, haven't they? Yeah. And I think it's us as investors, that, that presents us with an opportunity that there are existing landlords that have been affected by section 24 they still own it in their personal name the stress test is even more stringent in personal names than it is limited company and now they're kind of going oh my god i can't remortgage this i'm gonna have to put money in this property game is a load of maloney don't know why i'm doing it yeah and they'll sell it won't they but what what is the difference, really? Because people do get very confused between a, an ordinary buy-to-let mortgage and commercial mortgage funding. Are there different rules? Okay. Yes and no. So the market is made up of you know lots of different lenders in the marketplace. You've got your keen rate spectrum end of the market, which is quite vanilla. Tends to do stuff that is very simple in terms of an underwrite, so it doesn't take it's not particularly difficult to underwrite or to get the information in to do. Quite often that could be personal name, but it might be very simple, limited company stuff. And that is a, you know, yeah, it's a typical vanilla buy-to-let lender. You then kind of breach into what we call challenger banks, which, which is a kind of a hybrid of, of buy-to-let and commercial, where you've got lenders that will allow you to do things that the vanilla lenders wouldn't do. They charge a slightly higher rate to be able to do it. But as a tool in the toolbox, it's a great thing to have because it allows us maybe to go out and value the property differently or to split the titles maybe. And, you know, you bought a block of flats and you've created new, you know, leases on each flat. We've now done a title split and we're going to revalue the property based on, on, on that right up to our full commercial lender who, who wouldn't really, or it doesn't necessarily look to lend on stuff that's really vanilla, isn't competitive in that area because that's not their sweet spot. And they'll allow us to do a full commercial valuation. They'll allow us to remortgage inside of six months, new open market value. There are some lenders that will allow us to have, if, 
if anyone out there's got a purchase lease option, can be a fantastic thing with a commercial lender, whereby if your purchase lease purchase price is significantly cheaper than current market value, I can get you up to 90 or 95% loan to value on a mortgage or 100% loan to value on a bridge to purchase. So again, you can purchase with no deposit. That is staggering. Mm, isn't it? So, and that's where commercial broking really kind of comes in. It dovetails with buy to let and you need to know both. Because yes. what a lot happens a lot, you get a commercial broker who just does commercial, you get a resi broker that does a bit of buy to let and there has to be a handover between the two and the two need to either know each other particularly well and how each other work and, and how both sets and sides of the market work or you need someone who kind of has one foot firmly in the commercial broking side but also has another foot in the vanilla buy to let side so you can work out how to structure a deal. Right. So what, you know, you often hear horror stories about people having mortgages, which turn out to be the wrong sort of mortgage and, and thing go wrong. So they bought a house, they, they thought it was going to be an order of buy select, then they turned it into an SA or whatever. I mean, do people find themselves with the wrong product and having to suddenly change, which can cause them a problem? Or is this an urban myth? I mean, it's, it's, it's not prevalent, but it does happen, especially right. with modern technology. Part of your know, broking, and maybe we're going to give away some of the secrets for you, part, part of broking effectively, someone comes to me with a deal, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to Google it, I'm going to street view it, and check the property out. What is the value we're going to find when they turn up? Is the client's expectation of value correct? But in Googling it, if you've got a property that you're doing a holiday let and it's advertised on Airbnb, you Google the address and suddenly it pops up. Yeah. As a yeah, short term stays in in Norwich or Bristol, and for argument's sake, you haven't told me that that's what you're doing with it or the broker you're using. And the lender looks at it. You know, underwriters do do those kind of simple Google checks, and suddenly they go, "Well, hang on a minute, you've applied for uh, a single let property, but actually, it looks like you're using it for holiday let." Well, no, our, our current lenders doing that with current lending on their books. Again, not advice, generalised. It, it's some, You should be honest, shouldn't you? I don't know that we've got to a level of sophistication yet. However, the buzzword of the day or, or buzzword of, of our 2023, chat, GPT and AI, I dare say at some point they are going to start to get sophisticated enough where it takes virtually no uh, staffing hours to check those kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that's yeah. when that kind of problem comes in. But, yeah. Um, you know, so there's quite, there is in, in mortgaging, it's such a big subject. And um, as things get uh, more interesting from the rent rises, the rate rises and everything, as you said, there will be more properties on the market that people can do amazing things. And combined with the fact that everyone's got their head around now buying commercial and turning it into residential, there's a lot going on. How do you get into doing creative stuff where, as you said, you mentioned briefly and tantalizingly at the beginning, that there are some people who can get in and out of a deal with having had none of their own money in? Okay. Well, as in, how do I get into that or how do we get a client in? Well, how do you work it for? I know, for instance, that you did, you don't need to know their names, but I know you did a, a project with someone where they had an angel investor and they then did a project. By the time it got mortgaged out at the other end into their name, they'd actually had no fund in themselves, although it had been a joint venture. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 
okay, I might be oversimplifying because you know, we do a fair bit of this and, and it's a fair bit of bread and butter as to what we do as a brokerage. So it would start off with, with okay, right, what's the project? Where is it? Please let me know the address. We Google it. We have a little look at it. What is it right now? Where is it going to be? Where are you going to turn it into? What sort of rents is it going to generate if it's an HMO or a, an SA? Okay, have you got the deposit money? No. Uh, where are you getting the deposit money from? Okay, right. Understand? Yeah. Okay, that's fine. We, we just need to pick a lender that's going to be okay with the money coming from uh, an investor source, which invariably it's not. We don't have to be underhand in how we structure that. It's just a case of matching situation to, to lender. So in that circumstance, we picked a bridging lender that would, or a, a refurbishment bridging lender, I would say, that was happy that the deposit money was coming via an investor loan. Um, the, we demonstrated that the NGDV meant there was an uplift on spend. So the cost of buying and the cost of refurbing created an equity gain on top. And that equity gain on top enabled the lender to be able to lend a little bit more than 75 percent of the purchase price and 100% of the works. As happens in a lot of cases, I'd already worked out who the exit lender was going to be, who we wanted to value both the refurbishment loan to buy it, make sure that they were the same value, whether they're going to be the, the value we're doing the valuation. So the GDV figure that we got on the valuation to buy it was the GDV that we expected and was the GDV that I knew we would get when we came to do the remortgage because the same value was coming back. So it all kind of dovetailed in quite nicely. It gives you a real sense of comfort that you're going into this deal, you think you've stacked all your numbers and you hope. No, 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 no. Yes. No hope involved here. We've got the same value. So we've kind of covered that bit off. Unless the bottom drops out of the market drastically, and it has to be drastically, and I'll, I'll, I'll caveat that with, if you go back historically, most refurb projects can be done inside of six months. Historically, markets have not fallen by vast amounts inside of six months. Even in the credit crunch, we didn't see 15 to 20% drops in six months. It took 12 to 15 months for those to come in. So typically we can nail on that you're going to go, go in and come out at the same point. And that, of course, I mean, really does impresses why you, you just have to get your numbers right from the start and the fact that you've got to be completely open and honest with your broker. Now, that is a question I got asked this morning as well is, you know, as a newbie, what are you looking for from us, you know, paperwork-wise, figure-wise, yeah. knowledge-wise? Yeah, okay. So typically then the, the, the initial shortlist is fairly generic. So you know, we would send out a fact find document, which is a word document and ask questions about you, the investor or, or best investors. So let's say you've got one or more directors or one or more shareholders. So typically, you know, it's your address history, your credit history, um, last three months worth of bank statements, photo ID. So we've got to do anti-money laundering, um, and KYC, you know, your client, um, just to check that, you know, we can follow the source of money, um, even if you have borrowed it from an investor. So again, it's very key for me to understand from the beginning, if you're borrowing from an investor, because sometimes that investor has done nothing wrong, has got nothing to hide, but doesn't particularly want to be then having to show their bank statements. Yeah. To the, you know, to the person they've invested with and also the broker that they haven't met and that, you know, uh, and again, that's not wrong to want to, to be like that, but some lenders will want it all. Some lenders 
don't need to see it all. There are ways of structuring loan agreements and payments from that so that it, it sits better with lenders or they get have more comfort. Again, we're doing nothing underhand, nothing covert. We're just kind of providing comfort to the lender and picking the right lender for where you're at. Uh, so you, we covered bank statements, we covered ID, and then income proof, really. So if you're employed, we're looking at three months worth of pay slips. If you're self-employed, we're looking at, at SA302s for, if we have got three years, that'd be great. Um, question I get asked a lot. I used to be employed. I've got no income coming in at the moment. Can I get funding? In most circumstances, the answer is yes. Again, not, in, not individual advice. However, what I'm looking for is to get a little bit, again, creative is not the right word because we, we don't want to get creative in front of a lender when we're trying to present you. We, what we want to do is present to the lender what they want, not everything. Because if we present so too much sometimes, they can, it, you know, there are more questions that get asked that, than need to be asked. And, and invariably, you know, you'd be surprised how we can structure it so that, yes, you have an income and you do have an income, but it might not be everything that you thought you needed. Yes. And how, how do we, for those people who are just starting to put their heads together, how do they make their their bank accounts sort of mortgage ready? Do, you know, are, you, are you looking for nice, clean accounts? Yes and no. It's, this isn't like a resi mortgage. And I, I would, you know, I, I don't do residential mortgages. They bring me out in a rash, if I'm entirely honest. I don't sort <laughs> of, I, and currently I don't have SCA permissions to do them because I don't want permissions to do them. Because typically for that kind of, of mortgage, yeah, your bank account, your bank statements have got to be super clean. Anything that is irregular payments is going to be taken into account, probably for affordability. If you go to Costa Coffee twice a day, they're going to probably want to take that into account. If it's a buy-to-let mortgage, it's a lot less onerous. Right. Really what we're looking to do is, okay, some lenders have a minimum income and that might be 25K, it might be 30K. There are other lenders, if you if you have lower incomes or, or harder to prove income that have no minimum income, so where I could pick those, we just need to be able to show an income. Um, otherwise, it does get a little bit difficult, but there are ways around that as well. Don't be put off. You know, a, a good, I, there's a classic statement I, I always make, which is a good deal always finds funding. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think, but I think a lot of people also get worried by the concept of having to remortgage all the time because when they started, they had everything under control, and then now five years in, and everything's come back up for renewal, and of course their business has exploded, and and it's it's everything everywhere, and you know, in the back of their head they're being told it's all got to be neat and tidy. So actually, it's just a case of going, we've got to go with the flow, and let's see what what I need to actually present. Yeah, that, and that's really why having a somewhat specialist to to filter. So so basically, you you would send you know as much as I ask for on the outset and then will I use all of that information not necessarily I'll then determine and decide okay what what do we need to give this lender in order to to get us to where we're going of course that that is that's quite a relief I think for some of us you you just like the habit taken out of our hand yeah <laughs> indeed so so the bank statements you know it doesn't yeah as long as we you know if you come to me and you've got 100k's worth of unsecured credit card debt you're in your uh, you've gone over your overdraft limit that's a tough ask to get lending yeah. because clearly you're demonstrating that there are some challenges, but even then it's not impossible to make work. 
Good. So, um, and then there's another question that I got, I regularly come up across is, you know, why would people know when they start out, what is the difference between mortgaging and bridging? Oh, right. Okay. That's a great question. Okay. Long answer, I think we'll start with. We went through the credit crunch. Before the credit crunch, mortgages were much more free and available. Um, there, were, there was what I laughably termed the lie to buy mortgage before the credit crunch. Yeah. You just told the broker, yeah, I earn such and such. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't do any of these. Off. Uh, um, and off you went. Post credit crunch, the Prudential Regulation Authority and the FCA kind of got together and underwriting guidelines were tightened and how banks lent money out changed and, and got stricter as it should. And so you could abuse a buy to let mortgage pre credit crunch, i.e. So buy to let mortgage, the clue is in the name, buy to let. So the lender puts in their T's and C's that you will let this property out. They will assess it on affordability based on the fact that it has a rental income that's going to come in and that that rent is sufficiently high enough to cover the cost of the mortgage and a bit of extra on top. That, that's what's known as a stress test. So they, they stress test it to take into account interest rates going up. But you could do, you know, you, you could flout your buy-to-let mortgage pre-credit crunch and that happened a lot. Post-credit crunch, do some people still do it? Yeah, they do. Should you do it? No, because effectively you're, you're committing some, you know, something that's called mortgage fraud to effectively you're telling the lender that I'm going to take this property on and I'm going to rent it out. Well, actually, I'm going to knock seven bells out of it and put a loft extension in and a single story extension out back, at which point the lender, if they were, if that was to be found out, and I, I accept that's quite hard for them to find out and even harder for the FCA and Prudential Regulation Authority to, to find it on an audit, but effectively they've lent out irresponsibly because they've not checked properly that there is sufficient funds coming in to fund the debt. And that is the basis of a buy-to-let mortgage. And that is what one of those is. Bridging typically is a 12, but sometimes up to 24 months short-term funding. It doesn't fall under the same Prudential Regulation Authority underwriting guidelines. So therefore they can be, yeah, so they can do things that the buy-to-let lenders can't. And that's kind of why they exist. And they come far more to the forefront post-2008, 2009, because they're more needed. They do charge a bit more money. Uh, there's no getting away from that. As I often say, it's a tool to have in the toolbox to bring out to do a job. Yeah. Uh, if you look at it just on cost, um, you'll be scared of it. If you look at it as using it to do the right thing at the right time, it's the right thing to do. Okay, so they charge a little bit more, but there's a bit more risk in what they're doing because you're now, you know, I, I'm now, we're taking borrowing on to maybe do a refurbishment project. Things could go wrong with that project. Um, interest rates could go up and you might not be able to get the 75% loans of any mortgage when you come to do the remortgage. So the, that's why the bridging lender prices a little bit higher because they're pricing in risk. Um, however, they do allow us to be very creative. So it, actually, if I go back to a buy to that mortgage, if you've borrowed from an investor, the deposit, and you're then getting a 75% loan-to-value mortgage, most buy-to-let lenders are not going to accept the fact that you've borrowed the deposit. You've now got a 100% loan, which they tried to stop after 2008. Bridging lender, because it now doesn't fall under the same Prudential Regulation Authority underwriting guidelines, doesn't have to adhere to that. So it can now accept the fact that you have borrowed funds from an investor to cover the purchase price. 
well, the deposit and you know stamp duty, etc. So you could have no hurt money in the deal. So that that suddenly becomes you know becomes really useful and allows you to get going into scale uh, and to really make a difference. You, it's not just a case of putting your pennies away every single month in the vain oh. hope that you will eventually get a more uh, a deposit together. Yes. So it's. It is something that makes a huge difference. And now, you know, because you were talking there about rules changing. Um, I remember when I first started out, you weren't a landlord, capital L, until you had 11 properties. Things have changed, haven't they? What what are the numbers now to be deemed to be a serious investor? Okay, so you're considered to be a portfolio landlord when you own four or more. So if you own three and you're buying a fourth, that fourth mortgage is now a portfolio landlord mortgage that has to be applied for and then every property thereafter and then the more vanilla lenders will dip out of this at that point because it falls out of their remit so they they typically cater for accidental landlords or your small landlord has got one or two properties quite often still in their personal name although tax-wise that doesn't make a whole heap of sense that's a completely different subject matter but you know as a broker actually as a specialist broker you gotta know that gotta know how to you know yeah client comes to you and goes I can't give you tax advice, but you might want to go and speak to a tax advisor because what you're showing me probably isn't going to deliver you the profit you thought you were going to do when you come to pay your tax. Really? Yeah. Trust me. So only four. That's really not very many at all, really, is it? No, it isn't. No, it's quite an easy number to get to. If if you're new in property, the first one's always the hardest and feels the hardest and takes the, yeah, but the bit from one to four, if you've got the number one correct and done right, doesn't, it happens in a bleak quite often. Can happen in under a year, really. Um, what I mean, some people, I'm a great fan of having some unencumbered buildings in my portfolio. Does this help with the perception of how you treat debt to a lender or do they just not take not it into consideration? Yes. And the more commercial lenders, the more it, it carries a greater weight because they, they will want to know or want to do what's known as an assets and liabilities, income and expenditure assessment on type of your normal buy-to-let stress test. So if you've got a, a number of assets on, on your statement and lower liabilities, you are in a much stronger financial position. And if they need to, for argument's sake, they are, you know, the worst has happened and they're having to come and recall a loan. Well, they know that you've got lots of assets in the background. So therefore, they're, they're more likely to lend to more risky projects in that, that set of circumstances. But you can also use that equity to, to again, raise raise debt and, and deposits. So yeah, it can make a great difference. Certainly over-leveraging. Yeah, I over-leveraged into the last credit crunch. Don't recommend it. <laughs> and but it's quite easy to do, isn't it? Because we are, you know, if you if you go to any property meet, you hear never sell anything, and you know, make sure you're tax efficient by having everything leveraged to the eyeballs. It's not a comfortable place to be when it goes wrong, though, is it? No, you've got to be really careful uh, and building up projects all, all at once. It's not to say don't do this, and again, not individual advice, but in the early days of building a portfolio, you are going to need to leverage relatively aggressively, but 75% should be probably where you top out, especially in a changing market where we are at the moment. And it has been possible to borrow at higher leveraging. You know, 85% yes. 12, 15 months ago was pretty prevalent um, out there. What you've got to remember is, and, and you know, if we're assessing um, a refurbishment deal, we need to make sure that there's enough profit on GDV. But let, let's just call it a normal mortgage. And actually, no, let's look back at a refurb. The thing you've got to remember with a refurb 
if you've bought a house and it needs a good amount of money spending on it, in order to start you to do that work, you take the house from what it was, let's say a single let property or a commercial property, and you're turning it into an HMO. As you, as you knock it about, it becomes less valuable, but you've spent money on it. So there comes a point where those two things cross. Now, if the market changes, interest rates go up and valuations come down a bit, guess what happens a little more quickly? <laughs> yeah. Suddenly your property that you thought had was in positive equity has gone into negative equity. And if your lender stops funding the building works, which sometimes has happened, it's really key. Actually, I should have labored on this point as well. It's really key to pick refurbishment lending and lenders that are of reputable backgrounds. And they're not all. It's a completely unregulated market space. There are categories out there. Totally unregulated. Completely. Extraordinary. Okay, so there are some bridging lenders out there whose business models are to lend to really nice projects that they like the look of and find any way to put you into default so that they can actually take the project on for themselves. Well, that is the most... That is just the most staggering piece of information. That is your nugget for today, Simon. That is amazing. And that is why you use a broker if you are going to use any kind of bridging rather than going direct because you have removed your filter. If you've gone direct and something's gone wrong, you've got no one to kind of go back and point the finger at. You know, it, it's my job to make sure that you know, the right information was provided to you so that you had the rights. And if it goes wrong, you kind of go, well, hang on a minute. That, that is staggering because we sit in property meets and we're being told about the FCA regulations for this and regulations for that and, you know, banking regulations. And to suddenly discover in the middle of this, we've got the Wild West going on. Yes. That's really quite mind-blowing. Which is why a lot of people, I guess, have come to be scared of bridging. And you do need to be scared of bridging in certain circumstances and or going naked, as I call it. Oh, what's that? Uh, you, well, this is it. You, you, as in, you don't go with the protection of a broker, i.e., they're using oh, the broker's see. experience. Yes, so, so they pick broker. You know, it's not a fail-safe, but you know, the idea is to pick lenders that you've got a good, strong working relationship with, that you've done lots of business with over lots of years. You know that I'm going to leave your clients high and dry. I'm going to try and utilize the fact that it isn't regulated, so therefore they can be unscrupulous and get away with things to save a little bit of money. And sometimes you can save a small amount of money by going direct. I'm not going to deny that in some circumstances that can be done. However, word of caution, it's not all about the you know, absolute bottom line. It's about get, yeah, getting through, using people with a big experience to protect you and yeah, meander through. That is, uh, you know, such a, a really important thing to grasp that it is just about, you know, trusting the person you you work with. And on that, because sadly we'll run out of time, how do you choose to work a broker to work with, particularly for people who are new in the market? How do you go about it? That's a great question. Is actually, I want to say, yeah, you just come to me. <laughs> but I suspect is that the, the short, reason simple. why we tend to find brokers at networking meetings? Yeah, I think you know typically brokers who are in the network meeting that are you know stand, stand up in the twenty seconds. They're there to just try and grab some business from the room. They typically might not be well known to people in the group, so maybe you want to find someone who who has worked with other members of, of, the, you know, of the property meeting you've gone to and or if you've gone to get training or education that they've worked with, with them, et cetera. 
So it's basically you've got to get social proof, haven't you? I think so. That's really quite key. Um, yes. Again, it's not about shopping for price and it's about getting your head away from that. You know, yes, we are drummed in. We should get the cheapest mortgage available. Mm-hmm. Yes, for the house probably that you live in, that's probably the right thing to do. For maybe your first buy to let, if you're only ever going to own one single buy to let and you're not going to do anything further, possibly that's the right thing to do. And that doesn't require much in the way of expertise, particularly. But if you're looking yeah. to scale a property business and genuinely get to a point of financial freedom, yeah, you need to work with, pick someone who has helped other people do just that and has got some social proof. Yeah. Fantastic. What a lovely point to end with because that's where we all want to be, financially free, isn't it? Indeed. Well, thank you very much, Simon. I I know this is a very big and very tricky subject, but it is something that if you're going to invest long term and if you want to do property properly, you've got to start understanding what the broker does and why they do it, haven't you? Totally. Yeah. Totally. Um, and now I know that you will provide all your you know information and addresses, which will be in the show right. notes. But where is the best way for people to find you? So you could Google funded.co.uk and that will subdirect you to the website and contact information's there. You can ring me. You can email me. I don't think I've put it on there quite yet, but it, very shortly there'll be a, a link to Calendly so you can pick a time slot. Fantastic. Quite useful, especially at the moment when it's really quite busy. So there are times of the day when it's not easy to get hold of me because I'm trying to solve people's problems. And, and typically that takes headspace. So I try and dedicate the afternoons to speaking to people and the morning when I'm possibly at my sharpest, hopefully. <laughs> Well, thank you very much for taking time out of your afternoon and in the headspace area for doing this. It's been very kind. Um, Thank you very much. And I look forward to seeing you at the next property meet where I know you'll give us another update on the Sonia Swap. Yay. I think many of us overlook how important the money part of investing is, you know, because many of us get stuck on the property bit of it all. um, And then, of course, not just the property, but the technique we want to work with as well. That becomes all absorbing. But if you really want to succeed, funding is vital. And I hope you've taken some nuggets away today, knowing that that will help you. I learned a few things too, but that's the fun of hosting a podcast. I get to ask the questions. Thank you for listening to The Property Solopreneur with me, Rachel Troughton. If you've enjoyed this episode, do hit subscribe and kindly leave a review and share this podcast with anyone you think it would help on their property journey. If you'd like to get hold of my guide for building a successful property business, go to racheltroughton.com forward slash checklist. We only live one life. So let's get your dream a reality through building a profitable property business. If you found my stories inspiring and my content useful, then come find out more about my mentoring and strategy sessions by going to www.racheltroughton.com and book a discovery call with me. The banner link is on every page. Come and create and grow your own property business. That's the shortcut to success.